0: Ситиокаст. Все о технологиях, процессах, инфраструктуре и людях в IT-компаниях. Ситиокаст. Привет! Вы слушаете 18 выпуск подкаста Ситиокаст. Сегодня 27 декабря 2015 года. Все выпуски можно найти на сайте ситиокаст.ком, а также подписаться на наш подкаст в iTunes. Меня зовут Александр Остапинга, я нахожусь сейчас в Минске. По традиции рекомендуем хорошие подкасты. На этот раз подкаст linkmeup.ru. Подкаст о сетевых технологиях, достаточно нишевый, но очень достойный. Рекомендую. Как обычно, наш подкаст можно будет послушать на сайте dev.by. Dev.by – это самая популярная площадка для белорусских программистов. Самая полная информация об ивентах, происходящих в Беларуси. Есть также колонки, новости, вакансии. В общем, много чего полезного и не только для белорусских программистов. У нас новая рубрика, которую мы назвали Handzone. В этой рубрике мы будем рекомендовать интересные позиции для технических лидеров. И на этот раз команда из четырех инженеров ищет Node.js разработчика. Ребята запускают SaaS-платформу для интересной ниши в детской индустрии США. Ключевые слова Node.js, ES2015, Express.js, Sales.js, MongoDB, AWS, Docker месторасположение значения не имеет, за деталями обращайтесь ко мне в Twitter. Дополнительные контакты вы можете найти в шоу-нотах к этому подкасту на sitiocast.com. Если у вас есть проекты, в которые вы ищете основателей, сооснователей, ключевых инженеров, технических лидеров, то будем рады рассказать про вас. Open Source проекты очень приветствуются. Деньги мы не берем за объявление, но при этом будем говорить только о действительно интересных позициях. Этот выпуск необычный. Вы услышите запись интервью с Питер Молитьер, VP of Interactive Product Development компании Fitbit. Это интервью было записано на первом CTO School этапе в Минске, который прошел 16 декабря на площадке Event Space. сайт площадки eventspace.by. Этот митап был вдохновлен аналогичными митапами в Нью-Йорке и других городах, не только США. Джин Бармаш, организатор нью-йоркского митапа, любезно поделился с нами опытом и поддержал проведение метапа в Минске. Это интервью проходит на английском языке, что не совсем обычно для нашего подкаста, как собственно и сам формат. Во многом это эксперимент и мы будем рады вашим отзывам в комментариях на ctokast.com. Желаем вам счастливого Рождества и нового 2016 года. Приятного прослушивания.
1: Let me place a welcome on this stage uh, Peter uh, Malitier uh, from company Fitbit, uh, Director of Engineering.
2: Uh, sure. So uh, I've been working for Fitbit for about five years. Um, Fitbit as a company has only been around for about eight years. When I started, uh, I think there were about 15 people working in San Francisco. Um, So I've seen tremendous growth over the time that I've been there. So, uh, uh, yeah, so I've been there for for about five years. Um, We've grown from about 15 people to over a 1,000. So it's been tremendous growth. Um, You know, when I look back, you know, at some of the early years, it seems a little less dramatic in the first couple of years because you say, "Okay, well, you go from 15 to 30 people. You only hired 15 people. That's much less impressive than you know going from 200 people to 400 people. But you know, it's still the same percentage growth, and and it still has a very dramatic impact on on the way that you work together. Um, I came to Fitbit through an introduction from a friend at the time." Um You know, Eric Friedman, the CTO uh, at Fitbit and James Park, the uh, uh, CEO were looking for someone to come in and put a little bit of process around the engineering organization and really help to prepare software engineering at Fitbit to be able to scale. Uh, when I started, we had just come out of um, uh, back order with our first product. Um, we had just had our first break even month. Um, since then, we have, um, I think, released about seven products that I've been been involved with over the, the the you know almost five years that I've been there. So, you know, it's been a very steady uh, pace of of new product development and product release. Um, you know, we have a range of uh, wearable trackers, uh, both both clip and wrist mounted, as well as a bathroom scale, which measures your weight and body fat and wirelessly pushes them up to the uh, to the site. Um, we have a range of new products that we're working on, which unfortunately, of course, I can't talk about right now. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's how I've gotten involved in Fitbit. Um, I've been working uh, in San Francisco in startups for about 20 years. Um, I've done uh, about, about uh, about four different startups. One of them was successful. Three of them were not. Um, I think all of them were excellent experience. Um, I've also worked for Nokia for for a while, um, doing a multiplayer mobile gaming uh, platform, uh, Snap Mobile, uh, which was I don't know how many of you remember Engage, um, but uh, this was an extension of the Engage platform to Java feature phones. So. Um, Yeah, I'm happy to take any questions at any time, but uh, that's a basic introduction.
1: Okay, probably a couple of words about your responsibilities in Fitbit. What do you do in Fitbit?
2: So, uh, at this point, my responsibilities are really the user experience as um, delivered across the entire range of platforms that we support. So that includes you know getting the data off of all of our devices the network protocols for transferring the data from devices into the back end um the user experiences on our iOS and Android uh applications our desktop applications for Mac and Windows the third party APIs that we use to support integrations with uh partners such as ift and strava uh weight watchers um map my fitness my fitness Pal. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the service layer that, that really binds all of those different platforms together into a single user experience.
1: Uh, okay, it sounds pretty challenging, actually. And Could you please, like, on high-level perspective, describe how this all uh, Fitbit universe works? Um, uh, speaking about how do you develop features which depend on uh, different platforms? Uh, like, what kind of teams do you have? What is feature team for you?
2: So so yeah, I mean I think you know the, the platforms are are largely as I've listed them here. Um but but we really look at at our product as the single user experience that's delivered across all of these different platforms. And as as a result, when we think about a feature team, um a team that may be delivering social features, for instance, um we want that team to think about the social experience not just for iOS. But we want them to think about how the social experience looks for a user of any of our devices, whether they're using it with iOS or Android or the, the desktop client, et cetera. So um, as a result, when we staff a feature team, we want that team to have representation from all of the different disciplines that are required to do code, you know, to do to work on that feature across all of those different platforms. So that includes engineers for the the Java back-end, um, web front-end, iOS engineers, Android engineers, QA for both site and mobile, uh, product management as well as visual design and product design. um, So that we can really give the team a specific business challenge and say to them, we want you to provide this particular benefit to this particular user or set of users, and we want you to figure out what the feature looks like and how you can deliver that as quickly as possible to provide like the best the best user experience for all of these platforms.
1: Uh, okay, uh, so as I understand, you staff team per feature, right? So you don't have like fixed fixed teams which work together for some period or well, you do. Uh,
2: that's that's not quite right. We, we do want feature teams to be relatively stable over time. So we tend to create teams not around specific features, but really around uh, really product initiatives. So we feel like social features taken as a whole are an important strategic direction for the company. And so we have a feature team that's focused on social features. And as we're growing and... We have tremendous growth coming in the next year. You know, I I think our hiring plans for the next year are just as aggressive as they've been over the past. So, you know, being able to double the team or more is, is not, I think, unreasonable for where we are right now. But when we look at, you know, social as, um, as a specific feature example, just to, to use this, 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 uh, uh, this example, I think they would break into multiple teams focusing on uh, different subsets of the social experience, but still work together as a cluster of social teams. So yeah, we do want to have long-lived teams so that the teams can gel and cohere, um, get to know one another, and you know be able to play on their strengths. Um. I'd say that at least a team should be together for for six months, really, at the minimum. But most of the teams that we have now have been around for, you know, a year or more.
1: Uh, As you said, you're partially responsible for design and for product management. So uh, can you tell how do you integrate uh, design and product management uh, into engineering teams?
2: So, you know, design and product management are specifically the responsibility of our design and product management organization. So, one of the interesting things about our feature teams is that, you know, since there are people with different skills, the managers of the people with particular skill sets may be different than other people on the team. So, there is no single manager on a feature team who manages the team as a whole. The team self organizes around the uh, the, uh, the product backlog. Um, we use Agile pretty much across the board. We have a strong um, commitment to Agile as a company, I think, and um, really we want our teams to be self organized and self motivating. Um, so so product and design are really. Um, th- It's a different team, uh, at least from a management perspective, but we work very closely with them and they have people who are embedded in the feature teams along with engineering, QA, etc.
1: Anybody has any questions at that moment?
2: I have more or less the same
3: question, but a bit with the specifics. So you say your developers have quite a freedom in terms of how do they deliver or how do they cover the requirement of the market? So how do they pair their vision with the product management,
2: with designers? Well, the team has freedom, yes. I think that we have a product manager in the team. We have a product designer in the team. We have visual designer in the team, along with iOS, Android, site engineers, and QA. So when we pose the question to the team, here's a feature, how will you develop it? We have the whole team engaged, and certainly... Product management and product design are taking a lead role in saying, hey, we think it needs to go in this particular direction. But at the same time, engineering is involved in that discussion and saying, yeah, you know, that's great, but what you're suggesting is going to take us nine months to build. Maybe if we change it in this particular way, we can get it done in three months. Oh, okay, well, product may look at that and say, you know, that's not going to quite meet our needs, but it comes close how can we solve this particular problem? And through that collaboration, that back and forth between people who have deep expertise in these different areas, together they can come to a better understanding of kind of how to solve this multivariate equation between providing, you know, a solid user experience, doing it on a schedule and meeting the engineering constraints associated with delivering a service at scale.
3: Okay. And usually the, PM and so product management and developers, they are geographically distributed or are they located in the same office usually?
2: Um, Usually they're located together in the same office.
3: Okay, that's make it easier.
2: And, And that's a conscious decision. We really feel like in order to foster this type of collaboration, we feel like you need to have people that you can sit down and work on. We have been playing with the idea of trying to do some more geographically distributed teams I'm not sure that we've really found a great way to do that yet, and as a result, really most of our teams are co-located. Okay, thanks.
1: Thank you. Any other questions? Not yet. Uh, For me, the the most interesting part in Fitbit is that you've got hardware part, right? And for most, I believe, guys uh, here, uh, it's pretty interesting experience. How do you involve, like, on your level, on planning level, development of certain features which depend uh, on hardware parts. I believe that making hardware it's uh, pretty difficult, f- pretty different from making just software. So, uh, how do you plan your features, your devices? What the cycle of the planning?
2: It's a really interesting question, and I, I think it is. Um, I think it is the wave of the future in some regard. I think we're going to see more and more. Um, companies come out with integrated hardware um, software experiences so for us I think um, we do planning on multiple levels and uh, you know as we've grown um, you know we've moved from a small number of teams where you could easily understand how you know if we here in this room I don't know there's what maybe 60 70 people in this room if we were to break into teams and start to work together as a company, you could imagine that it would be very easy for us to collaborate with one another. You know, if this side of the room is a couple of teams and that side is is a couple of teams, each one of you would have some idea of who you needed to go talk to in order to resolve some dependency or some issue. Um, And when we were at this size as a company, we really relied on that kind of collaboration to resolve dependencies. When you get to a thousand-person company, I mean, we wouldn't all fit in this room. Or if we did, it would be very tightly packed, right? So um, we've actually just started a program management group um, who has a very strong focus on agile development practice. Um, we've been hiring a number of professional Scrum Masters to work with teams. And we're really seeing a difference between Scrum Masters and Program Managers in that Scrum Masters work with a team in order to help the team be more effective. Program Managers work in between teams to help to deal with the dependencies in between teams. So you know in answer to your question about how do we how do we deal with synchronizing hardware and software development really there are three lines that we're trying to synchronize one is the hardware development process and you can draw a line in the hardware development process between bringing up the factory right getting the manufacturing piece of it right and on the other side of the line is really the, the the product development, the prototyping phase where we're designing the product and figuring out what it's going to be, how many buttons is it going to have, what screen resolution does it need. So on the one side, you have a process that actually, I think at Fitbit, is becoming increasingly agile. And on the other side, you have a process that's really very well-defined and very... Uh, strongly structured because, you know, you have things like tool bring-ups that can take, you know, weeks or months to get, you know, as I understand it, some of the, the, the pressing machinery that builds, you know, bands for some of these, you know, you might fit four of them in this room and they're the size of railroad locomotives to, like, make these things in volume. So, building those kinds of tools takes time and that hardware process has a very specific schedule. So, Hardware runs on one schedule. You have firmware that sits kind of in between hardware and the interactive experience. And within the firmware team, really you have kind of two different masters. On the one side, firmware has to work with hardware manufacturing because a lot of their software runs on the board and interfaces with the test fixtures and the test equipment in the factory in order to verify... That the boards have been populated and soldered and that they're working correctly. So there's a lot of manufacturing support in the firmware group. On the other side of the firmware team, you know, you have the interactive experience. When I look at this device and I swipe on it, what does it do? When I get a celebration that I've met my goal, what does that interaction look like? Is it fun? Do the vibrations actually feel interesting and engaging? Or, you know, do I not notice them? Are they too strong? These are the kinds of questions that our user experience team works with our firmware team in order to try and define and build prototypes and work with individual users to, to get some sense of, you know, okay, well, we've built this thing. How do you react to it? And does it provide the experience that we want to provide? Then you have the interactive team. And the interactive team is working both to develop the interactive support for the hardware. You need to be able to pair devices. They need to be able to sync. We need to be able to do firmware updates for devices, so that as we roll out new features for existing devices, we can do that over the air. They're also involved in some of the features, like you know we've we've released uh, uh, sleep tracking, automatic sleep tracking, and automatic activity tracking, um, which have been rolled back to existing devices fairly long after launch for some of them. So. So we have, we have different schedules for different types of, of projects that we're working on, sometimes related more, more to marketing launches and things like that, sometimes very tightly tied to hardware products. Um, specific products, you know, we released Surge and Charge HR. The big thing about those products was that they provided heart rate tracking. So we needed to have the heart rate tracking experience released on the timeframe of those products, and we couldn't release it before because we didn't have any sensors to gather the data, and we couldn't really release it after because the hardware would have been kind of pointless without the experience. So we're, we're tied in, in different directions, and the way that we're really trying to address that is to create kind of an epic level execution roadmap, which is separate from our product roadmap, um it's very easy for the product management to see, team to say hey we're going to develop you know all of these new features in the next year we're going to have you know 15 major new feature teams and we're going to get them all up to speed next week it's going to be 90 new engineers and they're going to start working at full velocity you know january 21st they could say that sometimes they do our product team is actually fairly realistic and they know that that's not actually possible right So they say what they want and then the engineering team can look at it and actually dig into it and make sure that, okay, you've said that you want this new feature but we don't quite understand how to build it. Maybe we should have a little more discussion around it. Not exactly writing a specification but forming a common understanding of what the limits of scope for that feature should be so that we can say, okay, yeah, You know, based on what we're talking about, it's bigger than a bread box, it's smaller than a house. We think that we'll be able to build that within maybe three to six sprints. We do two-week sprints. So it provides enough of a sizing that we can actually start to plan and roadmap. So we're, we're doing this both for interactive projects as well as all of the work that we do for any hardware project. So every epic that goes into a hardware project, even if we're not gonna start on it for, say, four months or six months, means that you know we need to at least have some sense of how much time we're gonna spend putting into that and put it on a roadmap to make sure that, okay, maybe we have devices that we're gonna ship in September, say. Um, do we have the bandwidth in August and July and June to do all of the things that we need to do to ship that device in September. Now, hardware schedules usually mean that if you're going to ship a device in September, you actually need to have the experience done by the end of June. That's a separate question, but being able to look at these these dates and these timelines together and kind of surface very early on where things are going to start colliding gives you a lot of uh, freedom to be able to move things around and make the hard choices about what you're going to leave in and what you're going to leave out. You know, the the thing that we manage more than anything else is scope. You know, it's hard to change the time that we're going to ship things, although with interactive projects we can do that a little bit more than we can do it with hardware projects. But how much goes into a project, how much work are we going to put into providing this feature? Even if it's a banner headline feature, we may be able to do it with more or less detail and still meet the needs of the product launch.
1: Great response, Thank you. Uh, speaking about like uh, uh, let's spe- continue speaking about the process and uh, planning, uh, the part of my question was uh, what is the planning cycle? Uh, like, and let's speak not more uh, more about uh, hardware uh, product uh, than just interactive, and taking into consideration new constraints that you got this year. Uh, you became public and you have to commit for the year. Uh, right, uh, so um, I believe they are probably bring you some more challenges while you're planning. So, what is the average uh, planning cycle for hardware products? and uh, like what the uh, main milestones are usually there?
2: Um, so, you know, again, like hardware is not my specific area of responsibility. I can talk a little bit about what the planning process looks like. I think you know, we are a public company, I can't talk about specific hardware that we're coming out with, but, um, you know, I I think that that it's not entirely clear that we have to make commitments up front for the year in terms of what we're going to build and what we're not going to build. Initial commitments, I believe. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I don't want to get too much into, like, what commitments we can and can't make, but but I, I think that you know, we look out for the course of the year. We think about what devices make sense according to our corporate goals. Um, we have a, a consistent process to revisit those goals over time. Um, you know, we do kind of a first pass for individual process, um, for individual devices. Um, generally, our hardware planning process kind of goes through several different phases. Um, and they're pretty common phases for any hardware manufacturer. There's a... Uh, Kind of a, a a concept alignment phase where we try and figure out what is this product really. Um, there's a definition alignment phase where we say, okay, now we're actually trying to get everybody to agree on the same definition of what this actually is, and we have you know committed resources and committed schedule to deliver this product. Then we go into much more of a manufacturing oriented schedule. This is on the hardware side. Yeah. Um, So you go through electronic verification testing, design validation testing, uh, there's, uh, uh, production validation testing. It's EVT, DVT, PVT. Um, there's, there's mass production and then, uh, you know, there's first in hands. So on the hardware side, that's how they organize their work. The interactive involvement in that process is really early on we look at what are the epics that needed to be delivered for this project, for this device, and we try and line up the epics that go into the the interactive experience for the device with the various dates that fall into the hardware project, right into the hardware program. And from there, we do milestone planning six times a year. So... Uh, Every two months is a milestone. It's about four sprints. Um, This gives us the ability to look at, for the next milestone, we want sprint-ready stories for each sprint in the milestone. For the milestone after that, we want to have some sense of, you know, what epics are going into different teams for that milestone. As we get beyond the next two or three milestones, we may say, okay, we have a little less um, granularity. It gets a little bit more coarse towards the end of the year. We may lump some epics into, well, we know they're coming at the end. We don't know if it's M5 or M6, but they're they're falling in that bucket. And the idea is that we're spending most of our time planning the things that are um, just about to happen, and we're spending enough time looking on the horizon that we can see, okay, well, there's a kind of a problem out there Let's pay enough attention to that so that we know if there's anything that we need to pull into the current planning horizon. So the two of them need to um, actually kind of mesh together in a, in a very clear way. And this is a big uh, responsibility of our program management organization to make sure that um, you know, all of the things that are being planned for hardware are going to mesh with all of the things that we need to deliver on the interactive side.
1: Great, uh, any questions? Yeah, we got just a second. Please, please introduce yourself.
4: My name is Anatoly, I'm from XMIT. Uh, I have a question more um, maybe on a technical side of uh, the development. Uh, it's very interesting, uh, you have to support a lot of different uh, mobile platforms and devices, right? Uh, the first part of the question, how do you choose which devices to support and which devices to plan for? And the other question, what tools do you use to make sure that uh, the software works on all devices and looks good and is usable on all devices?
2: So, so uh, there are really two parts to that. One is how do we choose platforms? And I think to a large extent the platforms that we choose are chosen um, based on the business value that they provide. So for us, iOS, Android, Windows Phone are the main mobile platforms that we're supporting. Um, that covers really most of the mobile platforms, um, certainly by user and certainly by our our, uh, our particular market. Um, we support Mac and Windows desktop clients um, because that's you know we we don't have a lot of OS two users these days, um, but. You know, there's been some talk about supporting Linux as well. There are a lot of Linux users, but, um, you know, I don't know that there's been a strong business case made um, to be able to to support that platform. Um, Really, that comes down to a product management decision as to which platforms we're going to support. Um, I haven't heard serious discussions about adding particular platforms. in regard to how we test all of these platforms, I think, you know, generally, um, we've worked towards continuous deployment on the site engineering side. Um, I'm not going to say that we've completely achieved it, but um, we do have a very strong focus on automation because we feel like, um, you know, you want to run your tests very frequently. And if running your tests re- requires five people to sit down for three weeks to run all of your test cases, you're not gonna do it more often than every three weeks. right? We wanna re- be able to run our tests many times within a single day. And the only way that we can achieve that is through automation. And you know, to the extent that we can roll out automation both for iOS and Android, um, and potentially you know, Windows Mobile, I think that's something that we're working on doing. So. Um, Test automation is a big piece of making sure that we're able to cover all of those uh, all the platforms and the tool. There are different tools for different platforms, so it's it's hard to say there's one tool that does it all. Um, You know, we use uh, JUnit. Um, I think there's some use of TestNG. We use Jenkins for continuous integration, both for uh, uh, the site uh, side as well as for for iOS. Um, there are, are automation frameworks for, uh, for iOS and Android. Um, not remembering the name off the top of my head, but um, we also have uh, Selenium tests for driving the, the, the web front end. Um, it, it's a wide range of different tools. Oh, okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank, you for
1: thank you, any other questions? Yep, great, a lot of questions.
4: Um, hello, I'm Philip, and I'm DevOps. Um, I have a question: uh, Do you use yourself uh, your devices, and do you use some other devices like the Bon uh, to compare it? Is <laughs> it
2: So, so the question, as I understood it, was: Do I use our devices, and do I use other devices from other manufacturers? So, um, yes, I do use our devices. I have I have a Surge on at the moment. Um, I I took off my my super secret future device because I knew I would be here and you guys would all be pulling my sleeves up if I had something <laughs> something hidden. So um so so I don't I don't currently have another competing device, although, you know, I'll, I'll tell you you know about a conversation that I had with someone who who we recently brought in. Um and uh the question that 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 he asked me as as part of the recruiting process was like so, you know, if I come and work at Fitbit, am I going to have to, like, get rid of my Apple Watch? And I said, no, of course not. I mean, it's actually great to have, like, experience with the, you know, competing products. You get some sense of what do they do well? Um, what can we do better on? Um, what do they do poorly? Um and I think that's really that's really interesting experience. And generally, if you walk around our offices, you do see see people wearing, uh, you know, Apple watches or Garmin devices, things like that. So, um, you know, I, I think it's it's very it's very interesting uh, it's very interesting to see uh, what what our competitors are up to.
4: And another question, um, because I'm DevOps, I am very interested in open source. Do you have some uh some tools with open source story? Uh, I, I know that you use Jenkins and so on and Java, but uh, something in may, maybe you have a repository in GitHub or something like this?
2: I mean there there is some code in GitHub. Um I think most of the contributions that we make to open source right now are really um, like bug fixes and uh, things that we're making to other pro- um, projects. Um, you know, we're currently, uh, you know, we do use Redis, Memcache. Um, there, there are a lot of di- Hibernate. There are a lot of different open source projects that we make use of, and I think we, we very much value the open source community. We are looking for ways that, that we can better package and release um, open source software, Although, you know, I think that we also have a strong feeling that, um, we don't want to release something and have it quickly rot on the vine because we found a better solution or the industry has moved on or something like that. If we're going to, if we're going to release something, we want to be able to do it in a way where we feel like it's a solid contribution to a problem that people actually want to see solved and not just, something that, that we did in order to provide lip service to, hey, look, we're shipping something as open source. Um, I think one of the, the interesting things that we've done is with our API documentation, we've completely open sourced the API documentation itself so that you know if an API developer is looking at the documentation and something doesn't make sense and they figure out the issue, they can just submit a pull request and say, hey, this made no sense to me. I think you should have put this in the documentation. Maybe this will help someone else. And our API team can look at that and just pull it into master and republish our docs and get it updated right away. So we are looking for creative ways to actually use open source and to provide a, a solid contribution to the community because certainly um, you know, there are a lot of things that, that open source has been able to provide that have helped us.
4: Nice, thank
1: you. Alright, there's a question on you, okay?
5: Hello, Anton Stoyer, Pump Systems. So um, my question uh, is about your personal tra- transformation on uh, director of engineering role due to company growth, uh, because I understand that uh, to act like uh, uh, director of engineering for company of 15 people and to act for uh, multi con- uh, multi countries company uh, it's two different things so how you transform yourself uh, to keep acting like a technical leader and to, to not uh, turn into bottleneck and uh, additional questions so probably uh, have you studied somewhere to fill this gap or something else thank
2: you yeah, no, I, that's a great question. And I ask myself the same thing all the time. Um, so so when I started, I was actually hired as a principal engineer. And um, after some time, I was promoted to an engineering manager and then director of engineering. Um, I wasn't going to actually say anything, but uh, you know, recently I was also promoted to uh, VP of interactive product development. So it's no big deal. It's not that important. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> but, um, you know, titles don't really mean anything in the grand scheme of things. Uh, what matters is the contribution that you're making to the to the company. So, um, you know, I think that that in terms of of how I've personally grown at the company, um, it's it's certainly required um, uh, definite focus. Um, in terms of not being a bottleneck, I think it's something that I've recognized very early on. You know, I, I had a long career as an engineer and I've had good managers and bad managers. I've seen the things that managers do well and the things that they really don't do well. So, so I've been able to, to, to take those, those, those observations and really kind of look at my own behavior and say, okay, who do I want to be? Right. And, to me, the most important thing that a manager can really do is to trust the people that, that you work with and to, um, really give them the freedom to, to go out and do their jobs well. And, um, you know, I think that, that this is a sentiment that is shared among all of the top management at Fitbit. Um, I think we really do have, um, you know, a belief that that we can't centrally manage everything. Um, if we tried to centrally manage everything, it would be a train wreck, um, as you've pointed out. We would block everything. And so, you know, really what we try and do is to provide solid context and goals and guidance to the teams, try and help set up the teams so that there are minimal dependencies between the teams, and let them run and, you know, listen for... You know, people asking for help, listen for, you know, the early signs of breakdown or, you know, friction that start to come up and then try and focus on those areas in terms of what we can do. So, um, you know, I think the company is also trying to provide, um, a lot of support and resources for, um, not just leaders, but everyone in the company. Um, so there's a lot of training and, uh, uh, um, support that the company is providing—that's actually been very, very useful. Um. Hi, my name is Ivan.
3: Yeah, so this all describes what you're doing. The, my question is, why you're doing? It. What's like the sexiest part of your job? Like, do you like just organizing high-level stuff, or you just like wearing secret stuff underneath your sleeves? So just like you—you you just want to be cool and head of everything. What, like, why do this? What makes you wake up each morning and go to work?
2: It's a good question. And you know I think for me, the reason that I keep doing it is that um, there's a real charge. and I feel like um, what I try to do every day is really to put myself out of a job, right? I want to be able to create a company that that has embedded in the way that it works, um, a culture that creates excellence. And once I think we have that in place, I can start thinking about about you know other possible opportunities. When I first started, I had done a number of different startups, and really what I was looking for when I started was a place where I could come in and use my particular talents in order to um, help a, a startup to scale. Right? I was less worried about the startup actually being successful. I was really interested in you know i'd done the early phase startup where i was one of two or three people sitting in an attic feverishly typing all night long on you know monsters and 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 cheeseburgers but um you know and i've done the the, the portion where you know we took a proof of concept and built it out in order to try and you know raise funding you know to scale the organization but i'd never really started at that point where You know, funding is achieved, you have a proven business idea, and you really want to scale it and try and turn it into a real business. That was my goal. And I think we've achieved that. I think we have a real business. We've gone public. I think that's cool. Um, The thing that keeps me is that I feel like my skills still provide benefit to the company, and I feel like they're still appreciated by the people at the company. Um, And as soon as that feeling changes, I will look for some other place where, where I can have that feeling. But, um, yeah, it's not about, you know, wearing cool devices under your sleeve or, um, you know, honestly, a lot of what I do isn't really all that sexy. Um, (laughs) you know, when I think about it, it's like, really, my job is to go and shovel the shit that nobody else really wants to shovel so that they don't have to. So, um, You know, I think, I think it's important to have, to have that, that kind of mentality, um, as you, you work with your company because, um, you know, you spend a lot of time working with the people that you work with. Really more time than you spend with your family, um, you know, your friends. You want to like the people you're working with. And if you don't, then why are you doing it? You know, and, and it's hard to really, have strong connections with the people that you're working with if their goals are not really focused on trying to make the team more efficient and more effective for the people in the team.
3: Awesome. Thanks. Any more questions? I'm Alexei from Logic Now. So the question is, you went from 15 people to 1,000. It's quite a journey. So can you tell a bit more about how you handle this journey in terms of management? Because I don't know how it's in states, but for us it's quite a problem to find managers because they don't train IT managers, so usually they grow from developers or so. So how, how have you hired the managers? Have you grown them locally? or Because it's, it's quite a challenging task.
2: It's very challenging. I think hiring good people is difficult, whether it's San Francisco, Boston, Minsk. Um, so I, I think that, that in terms of how we've managed the growth of the company, it's been a very organic process. Um, we started out really with one sprint team and that split into two and the two turned into five. And, you know, the, 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 the metaphor I always use is kind of, you know, Cell division or, you know, amoebic cell division where, you know, you kind of, you know, we, we, we grow one team until it's kind of ungainly as a single team. And then kind of, you know, there's this, this process of like meiosis and mitosis where you kind of split two nuclei apart within the single cell. And then eventually the cell breaks into two separate cells. I think it's a good, it's a good metaphor and, and it's something that, that's worked for us very well. Um, that's, involved both training people and trying to raise leaders within the company. Um, I think it's very good to give people the opportunity to grow. I think it's also very good to give people the opportunity to fail because I think you can learn as much or more by failing than you can by succeeding. And so, you know, sometimes people say, I want to grow into a role that, after playing in it for a little while they find oh, I'm not so interested and they want to go back and there should be no penalty for that. Um, sometimes people try and grow into a role and you find out that maybe they're not completely suited or ready to take on that additional responsibility and that's okay. You know, um, Other times people grow into roles and, and they continue to grow and, and it's a great success story. Um, with the rate of growth that we've had though I think that that we've found that we also need to bring in people at many different levels um, from the outside as well and um, you know there there are pros and cons on both sides I think you know bringing people in from the outside brings in different experiences fresh eyes someone who can look at the problems that we have and say "Oh well did you guys ever think about this and they point to the thing that's right in front of your face but you know, you can't see it because you've been too close to it or it's grown with you over time. So I don't know that I would say that one or the other is better or worse. I would say that only doing either one is probably not as good as doing both. Okay, and
3: one last question here. How did you how did you handle painless demotions? So you say some people fail. It happens quite frequently if you try to grow a developer to a manager. So how do you remove the pain when you go to a guy and say, hey, you are not coping with the task? Or wow. you're
2: um, <laughs> it's a good question. I, I think really that it's very easy to do if if what you're doing is you're saying, hey, look, we're going to give you the opportunity to take on this role. We're going to try it out. We're going to try it out for a little while. We're going to see how it goes. And, you know, I mean, generally this is something that we do with managers. Um, you know, we try and say, like, if somebody's going to change managers, we don't just say, okay, you're now reporting to this person. You're like, oh, who is that guy? I don't know who he is. I don't, I don't have any connection to him. But what we'll say is, hey, you know, we're kind of thinking about making this change and how would you like to to consider a trial run with this manager? And at the same time, we're saying to the manager, "We're like, you know, we're thinking that maybe it'll be okay for this person to to." to report to you, but we want to give you the opportunity to get to know them and find out if it's going to be a relationship that works. We don't announce to the whole team, like, okay, hey, these guys are doing this trial thing, so that if it doesn't work out, we can say, okay, that didn't work, and let's try something else, and nobody's the wiser, and there is there is no pain involved in it. Um, you know, Sometimes things are a little bit more visible, um, but I, I think you need to have a culture where people can make mistakes, and that's okay. I think it's very related to, you know, retrospectives, you know, being able to say, okay, this project crashed and burned. Why? If everybody's saying like, not me, you're not going to get a very good answer and you're not going to do a good job the next time around. You have to have a culture where can somebody can say, yeah, I really screwed up doing this and this and this. And everybody goes, yeah, you did, <laughs> you know, but it, that's okay. Um, if you're making the same mistakes repeatedly over time, after you know, project, after project, maybe it's a different conversation, but you know, making a mistake and learning from it is something that should be you know, accepted and, and you know, even to a certain degree rewarded.
3: Okay, thanks a lot.
1: Guys, we don't have a lot of time for that part, but still a couple of questions we can take. Introduce yourself.
4: Uh, hello, Peter. My name is Valerie from Cyberfund. I have a specific question. Uh, with partially answer for myself, uh, did you go into integrate blockchain technology in your ecosystem? Uh, did you hear about blockchain? Sorry, uh, blockchain. Uh, it's, uh, it's case for me. Um, for example, you can build your own blockchain and. Uh, uh, Add your own token to system and allow users to uh, earn these tokens based on proof of physical activity, uh, sport activity, and allow uh, users, your clients, pay for sports goods, trainings, uh, gyms with these tokens. And will uh, this brings not only um, people who use your devices, but uh, are the sponsors and ergo- organizations and uh, other companies? Did you, did you think about that? No, we haven't. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good case. Hello, Peter. My name is Vlad. I'm from
3: WebGaming. Uh, my question is uh, Do you have so called technical debt when you have to make some features of the product fast, not good, according to business deadlines? How do you manage
2: it? Yeah, at Fitbit, I think all of our engineers will tell you that we never create any technical debt. Do you guys? <laughs> do you guys agree? Yeah, yeah. They're all up back there going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, o- of course, you know, I-, I think sometimes you even incur technical debt because you know you do something, you think you're doing it the right way, and halfway through it, you realize like, oh wait a minute, like we kind of screwed up when we designed what we're doing. It's not always because you're trying to hit a product deadline. Although I I agree, that is a common source of it. Um, It's a difficult question. And I think that what we ask our engineers to do is not to take shortcuts. If product is saying, you know, how long is it going to take to do this? And the engineers are saying, well, you know, it's going to take three months, but you know if you want we can take a shortcut and incur a bunch of technical debt and get it done in a week like don't don't offer that right just say it's going to take 3 months and let product say oh wow okay it's going to take 3 months um maybe it's not as important to do if it's going to take 3 months maybe you know they'll come back and say you know we want to get it done in 2 months what can we do and at that point you can have a conversation about cutting scope but just starting off saying, "Hey, we're going to take a shortcut that incurs technical debt puts you in a position that that you don't want to be in. So do everything that you can to avoid uh, avoid doing it. I, I think even given that, you're always going to incur some. And being able to represent that and have engineers say, "Okay, great, you know we ship the product and now we have this technical debt to pay off we need to be able to represent the work that we need to do in order to maintain a scalable, performant infrastructure, whether it's you know, on one of the mobile applications or if it's in the site backend. We need to represent that work in the planning process to make sure that we're scheduling time to pay that down. And I think that that in some ways we're very lucky because our product organization totally understands that Shipping new features means absolutely nothing if the site falls over, right? So, you know, there are some very strong cards to play there in saying, hey, we have to do this. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to serve more than our current number of users at Christmas, right? That's a big card, right? Because if we can't serve more than our current number of users at Christmas, and we're expecting multiples of growth, you know, on Christmas Day that's not going to do the business any good. No one wants that. So we need to pull those things forward. And, and I say we're lucky because we do have product managers who, you know, come to us and say, hey, we want engineering to represent the work that engineering needs to do in order to maintain scalability, performance, team velocity more strongly. Because they're product managers, they're not engineers, they're not going to be able to say, oh, and you know did you guys remember to, to, to you know uh, clean up the database schema mess that you made while you were implementing this feature on that deadline so so I, I think it's it's a place that really requires collaboration between product and engineering it requires a commitment to doing things the right way the first time and it requires commitment to being able to go back and pay it down as you incur it thank you
5: Other
1: questions?
4: Yep.
5: Um, I have a question about uh, engineering excellence or engineering productivity because uh, for sure it's clear that uh, uh, particularly, uh, each country try to build a culture when uh, developers write a good code without uh, any bugs uh, etc. But the question how to do more with less uh, I mean that probably are you using some Specific KPIs or techniques or something else to to build this culture to make sure that uh, uh, really uh, all newcomers or uh, people who worked uh, in your company for a long time they, they, they really develop their skills and uh, make I don't know and make engineering excellence.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think hiring good people is really important, and and good in this case means people who are passionate about what they're doing, people who have a strong work ethic. Um, I think part of it is also providing teams with solid guidance about what their goals are, um, how to measure their performance against their goals. So to that extent, you know, I think KPIs can be double-edged. You know, I think the message needs to be, here's the goal, and here are some metrics that we think are going to actually reflect performance against that goal. But you know, if for some reason we realize that the metrics don't measure what we thought they would or we decide that, you know, even though this metric is doing well, really we're not moving the goal, we're going to get rid of the the metrics. Maybe we'll find different metrics, but the goal's not going to change until it does. But then, you know, that's a change in goal, not a change in metrics. So, you know, providing that kind of clear context is, I think, very important. I think You know the other the other thing to keep in mind too is that giving people freedom and autonomy to make decisions, giving them the authority to say, "Hey, look, this is your area of responsibility. It's your responsibility to move things forward." In that, like, really calls people to be their best selves, right? And you know, if you come back and say, "Hey, why didn't this work?" People aren't generally going to say, "Oh, well, you know." He told me I was responsible for that, but, you know, I didn't really work on it very hard. I mean, that, that's not a problem that, that we've had. Um, so um, I think it's really about getting people who are engaged and people who, you know, want to work together, people who are, um, you know, really put into an environment that tries to support them in doing their best.
5: Uh, but probably you, uh, you can provide some some specific examples. I mean that uh, anyway, that uh, it's clear that uh, direction, mission, and context is is really important, but. Uh, as for me, I think that anyway uh, you should have an agreement that, for example, uh, each feature should be covered uh, by unit tests no less than 80% and something like uh, else, because that is a direction as well. But uh, this is a direction based on some particular c- calculation. So probably, if you have any specific metrics which are really important for you, that that is, I don't know, that is a, a default sit- setup for each new team, new project, etc., that will be mm-hmm. really interesting.
2: I mean we, we do have unit testing coverage metrics that we look at. Um, we've actually uh, written some, uh, some tooling to be able to measure coverage of the lines written in an individual commit so that we can distinguish coverage of the code base as a whole from coverage of new code being committed. Um, I don't think that one's particularly um, surprising. Um, we have metrics around production stability, error rates for various APIs, um, you know, uh, uh, response times, um, things like that. So So those are all pretty clear. I think then there are also metrics for individual teams. So you know if a particular team is responsible for you know trying to drive retention or engagement, they ha- may have you know a specific KPI around, you know, uh, percentage of, you know, weekly active users who are actually using that feature that they're trying to drive over time. Um, so, yeah, those are all examples.
5: Great, thank you. Hello, my name is Andre, and my question is, uh, do you have a long decision loops when you, for example, can't cut development time or can't increase budget, and you need to 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 be on... Development position, probably on management position, on on position of financial management, and how do you resolve them if you have, and if you try to resolve them, do you try to encourage developers to be heroes, for example, to close uh, some um, some cycle very fast, or do you do
4: some other things?
2: So. I, I think this is one of the nice things about product development versus outsourcing development. For us, you know, the budget uh, side of the equation is really about, you know, how many developers can we, you know, not just developers, but um, product managers, designers, engineers, QA. How many people can we have involved in working on a particular feature area, whether it's a feature team or or, or what have you. But for the most part, that stays constant. It's increasing over time and relatively quickly, as I've talked about, but the time that it takes to scale human resources is, you know, very long. It takes, you know, on the order of, you know, two to six months to fill a position. Um, if you're talking about trying to staff a particular project, really what it comes down to is scope versus shipment date. And for the most part, um, you know, we do manage both. I think I mentioned, you know, for some hardware uh, programs, the dates may be much more uh, firm than they are for some of the interactive programs. For some of the interactive programs, they'll slip in order to get the scope to complete. Um, One of the things that we can do is, you know, be creative with firmware updates for hardware. So, you know, there are devices that we've shipped which... um, require a firmware update out of the box. And that buys us time to continue developing the experience for software that is then delivered when the user initially pairs the device versus software that's delivered when we send a firmware image to the factory um, often many months earlier. So there are things that you can do with dates sometimes that don't necessarily have a user experience impact. Okay, it does have a little bit in that the user is doing a firmware update now, but it, it, it kind of hides, and the, the, the business value is actually worth that slight impact to user user experience. Um, the other option, and this is one that, that we do a lot of, is to really look very closely at what we're trying to deliver by this date. Um, is there a way to deliver what we need in uh, less time then we have to deliver kind of the initial full concept, and often what we find is that you know you draw the box and you say okay here it is, and you know you can ca- start saying like well we're gonna erase this little piece here and that little piece here and maybe we don't need this and maybe so after a while your box looks like a piece of Swiss cheese, but you're covering all of the things that you actually have time to do to provide the experience and the time that you have, and. Those things that you're cutting out may come in a customer update slightly afterwards. So, being really, really uh, draconian in your definition of minimum viable product can buy you a lot on the scope front. So,
5: your idea is that you always can
2: cut scope, correct? Well you can't always ways. cut scope. You can't say like okay, we're going to ship a product that you can't pair to your account because like you need that functionality. But what I am saying is that often when you look at a project early and you define the scope, it's defined generally enough that you know the the brush is very broad and you end up including things that are maybe not quite as required as other things. And so when you start taking those things that are not as required out, you get to a set of things that are maybe more required. And if you launch the product and it's successful, then you look at these things that you said in the beginning were required and you have to ask yourself, were they really required for launch? You know? And the answer for that is often the product would have been much better with those things. Right? And you still have the opportunity to work on those things and to deliver them through a firmware update or through an update to your site or whatever, to an app update. But you know, if you've met your delivery deadlines for the, the, the initial shipment, then sometimes delivering those features slightly later is actually, I mean, it's better to deliver them in high quality than to deliver them early, earlier and, and provide a poor experience because it's crashing right so so what i'm saying is that there's work to do there and it requires a lot of collaboration between product and engineering to really drive down to what you can complete in the time that you have to do it there's there's one other point that i'd make here which is you asked about pushing engineers to work harder in order to complete to complete things and you know that works a little bit right Like, asking somebody to say, like, hey, you know, we really need to complete this, and, like, people work a little bit harder during, like, the week or two or three coming up to a release. Maybe they stay, like, an hour later or something than they normally would, or they come in a little bit earlier. That's one thing. Asking people to work, you know, 18-hour days for three weeks in a row, like, not taking any weekends, which is something that I've done, right? Like, sleeping under your desk and then getting up and starting to code again has a negative impact on your ability to deliver over time. Because at some point, right, and I think everyone's had this, right, you're sitting and you're working on a problem at night, and you're pounding away on it, and you're pounding away on it, you're making no progress. You go to bed, you get up in the morning, and you sit down, and you're like, what an idiot am I? It's like, simple, it was a sign that I had wrong. Boom, you fix it in five minutes right? No amount of pounding on it the night before would have actually found and fixed the problem. You need to take that break in order to approach the problem freshly. And so from that perspective, I think product development is really, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. You want people to be able to come to the problem fresh and repeatedly over time without, you know, doing this thing where, okay, we had a death march and we shipped it and then everybody's gone. Whether they're sitting at their desk or they're not, They're gone, right? Because they're like, oh, yeah, that was a tough one. Uh, I don't know what we have to do this sprint, but I'm not really doing it, right? So being able to keep that steady pace and to respect people's need to actually have a life I think is very important. I think it... Этот выпуск публикуется
0: на ctocast.com, devby и Хабре. Приглашаю всех комментировать наши выпуски на ctocast.com. Ваши комментарии это лучший способ обратной связи, которая нам очень важна. Также рекомендую подписываться в iTunes, чтобы быстрее всех получать новые выпуски. Большое спасибо и до новых встреч. Пока. Спонсор выпуска компания kaspova.ru. Медленная загрузка страниц вашего сайта вызывает не только недовольство посетителей, но и может стать причиной их ухода к конкурентам. Теперь нет необходимости прибегать к услугам специалистов для оптимизации производительности. Каспова.ру – это облачный сервис для ускорения загрузки сайтов. Одним кликом добавьте ваш сайт на ускорение, и уже через пару минут сайт радует вас и ваших посетителей мгновенной скоростью загрузки. Попробуйте Каспова.ру бесплатно прямо сейчас час.